Scholars tell us that we live in a post-Christian age.、Uh, what in the world do they mean by that? I've always found that expression fairly interesting because what that expression "post-Christian age" means is that in our culture,、uh, both the direct and the indirect influence of Christianity and its teachings are fading. And so, even at the most popular cultural level,、uh, people no longer possess even the most basic understanding of the Christian teachings. And that's what scholars mean when they say we live in a post-Christian age.、Um, I always found that expression、uh, very interesting because that's actually a very Western-centric way of looking at the world.、Um, if we pay attention to the news that come out of different parts of the world. Christianity is thriving in Asia, in Africa, in South America, in different parts of the world. Gospel is bearing fruit, but it is true, nevertheless, that in the Western parts of the world, with which we are most familiar,、uh, the influence of Christianity and the Christian teachings are、uh, forgotten, and every day more so. And because that's the world in which we live, sometimes it is very easy and even tempting for us to think that a strong opposition to the gospel means that that the spread of the good news will be hindered. And conversely, I think it's easy and tempting to think that we will surely know that God is really blessing the gospel ministry. When gospel ministry faces little opposition, I think that's the temptation that we、uh, face to think that if there is a strong opposition to the gospel, then people will not be saved. Or on the other hand, surely we will know and God is blessing the ministry of the gospel when He does away with the opposition to the gospel ministry. In, however. Uh, point of fact is that in the book of Acts we see that God blessed Paul's ministry to be fruitful amidst opposition and suffering. It was not in the absence of opposition and suffering that the gospel bore fruit, but amidst and facing opposition and suffering, the gospel bore fruit. And as we consider these things, we realize how. Needed, timely, and edifying instruction. This is because we do live in a gospel-resisting culture, and understanding that in the book of Acts we see that God caused the ministry of the word to be successful, not in the absence of opposition, but amidst opposition. It teaches us to endure. It teaches us to be strong and not be the kinds of Christians. Who give up at the first sign of trouble, and at the same time, it encourages us to persevere in our labors with hope. And so, that is the first thing I like to draw your attention to this morning: gospel success amid opposition. Gospel success amid opposition. Now you know、uh, that Paul and Barnabas went to Iconium. They fled the persecution in in Pisidian Antioch. They went to Iconium. Now Iconium is now called Conia.、Uh, it's about 100 miles southeast of where they were in Pisidian Antioch, 
and this is now located in South Central Turkey. So if you go to Google Maps or Apple Maps, if you type in Konya, you'll see where Iconium is. And what we noticed there is that Paul and Barnabas once again went to the Jewish synagogue and, in, and spoke in such a way that, what way? How did they speak? Well, I think whatever that phrase might mean, they spoke in such a way, at the very least, we can gather that Paul and Barnabas, they were not discouraged and downcast by the opposition and difficulties they faced in Antioch. Rather, they were full of hope. They were full of conviction, power, and grace that when they went to the synagogue, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But once again, we read that with the success of the gospel came trouble, so that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So what next? What do they do? How should they respond? So when the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, we read in the very next verse, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders done by their hands. Do you see what happened? They faced stiff opposition and Paul and Barnabas dug in their heels in response to the opposition. Isn't that wonderful? They didn't turn and leave. They didn't say, well, clearly the Lord is not blessing our work. Clearly, these oppositions and difficulties mean that God has closed the doors. No, they dug in their heels. And they stay there for a long time. And the Lord powerfully worked to attest both the authenticity of the message and the messenger. And so what we see here is that the gospel success is achieved in the face of opposition, not in its absence. And it seems to me that we need this conviction today. Because we do, in this western part of the world, we do face opposition to the gospel. We do face stiff criticism, hindrance. But if we had the same mindset and the conviction as Paul and Barnabas, when we face opposition, then we should dig in our heels. And precisely because of the opposition, commit ourselves even more deeply to the word of his grace. And that is necessary because we saw in chapter 13 how Luke told us those whom God appointed to eternal life, they received the message of Jesus Christ as verse 3, the word of grace. And then in verse 7, that same message is called the gospel. Now, we hear the word gospel so much, we forget to think about what that word actually means. Those who are appointed to eternal life, they heard the, the message of Jesus Christ, and to them, that was the word of God's grace to them. Forgiveness of sins, 
cleansing, acceptance of eternal life. And when they heard the message of Jesus Christ, they knew that it was the gospel, the good news. And yet those who were perishing, they heard the same message and they felt in their heart a deep contempt for Jesus. Now sometimes the contempt for Jesus looks like sheer apathy. You know, you tell people about Jesus and they might not say, oh, sure, uh, I don't hate it. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to uh, argue with you about it, but they're just not interested. There's just apathy. And what does that tell us? It doesn't tell us that they are neutral about it. Apathy is actually a sign of contempt because we always have passion and interest for the things we find beautiful with things that we agree. So apathy is actually a sign of contempt. And other times, that contempt comes out as rage. And that's what we see here. Uh, the unbelie unbelievers in Iconium, they scheme to mistreat them and to stone them. And Paul and Barnabas then fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycoenia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continue to preach the gospel. Faithfulness to God and faithfulness to the message of the gospel does not mean that you throw yourself to be murdered by the unbelievers. Uh, Paul and Barnabas felt free to flee from harm, and indeed they were led by God to do so. But when they fled the harm and the danger, they did not abandon their work. When the doors of ministry closed in one field, they moved on to the next. And I think that's important for us to recognize. There is a time and place when you face opposition, you dig in your heels, <laughs> you stay, you harden your resolve and your mind, and you stick it out. And at other times, uh, it is perfectly wise and even righteous to flee harm and danger because there is no virtue in simply throwing the gift of life away, but rather consider how to be more useful to the Lord in a different field. And so that's the first thing that we see here, gospel success amid opposition. Secondly, we see gospel ministry among pagans. Gospel ministry among pagans. Now, Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra, which is about 25, 30 miles south of Iconium. And once again, they uh, proclaimed uh, the word, the message, the gospel, and the Lord confirmed their message and the messenger as his. So there was a man who was crippled from birth, and Paul looked at him, and he said in a loud voice, Stand upright at, on your feet. And he sprang up. And he began walking. Now, this reminds us, doesn't it, of Peter healing a man who was lame from birth in Acts chapter 3. And one of the things that's happening here is God affirming and confirming that Paul's ministry is just as apostolic as Peter's ministry. But what's interesting here in this text is that this healing of the crippled man caused an uproar. 
You see, in verse 11, we see, and when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in Lycoanian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And this is where uh, a little history is very helpful. Uh, about roughly 50 years before Paul's arrival in this area, the Latin poet Ovid uh, wrote in uh, his book Metamorphoses, and in that book he included a very well-known local legend from this area where Paul is now. And in that story, Zeus and Hermes visited Phrygia, which is a neighboring region to this area. And in the story, Zeus and Hermes visited Phrygia as mortal men. And, but the people of Phrygia were rude and inhospitable. And the gods, Zeus and Hermes, they destroyed the homes of those people who would not take them in. And so that's the historical background. This is a very well-known local legend. Uh, and so it seems that the people of Lystra, they saw Paul and Barnabas healing the crippled man, and they concluded that Zeus and Hermes were once again visiting them, and they were determined not to repeat the errors of their neighbors and avoid their faith. And so the priest of Zeus brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Now, when you read this, uh, would you agree this is almost comical? <laughs> but at the same time, it's very instructive, uh, precisely because we do live in a post-Christian age and a post-Christian culture where both the direct and the indirect influence and memory of Christianity has faded. And interestingly, the people of Lystra, they interpreted both God's gracious word and his gracious work according to the framework of their paganism. You know, they had no knowledge of scriptures. And so they heard Paul talking about Jesus. And they witnessed what God in the name of the Lord Jesus has done. But what do they make out of it? They interpret those events. They interpret the message, not according to scripture truths, but according to what they were familiar with, their paganism with which they grew up. Because you see, they had no knowledge of scriptures, and paganism is all they knew. And I think this is why when we read the stories of great missionaries of the past, they would often labor for decades, if not for generations, without much fruit visible. Why? Because when the gospel is proclaimed in an area where there is a strong grip of paganism where there is no knowledge of scripture. It takes an incredible amount of work and time to bring such people to Christ. And you notice, don't you, uh, when Paul and Barnabas preached in the Jewish synagogue, we saw that in Antioch, and we saw also in Iconium, they went straight 
when they were preaching in the Jewish synagogue, they would go straight to God's covenant promises made to their fathers. And they would proclaim Jesus as the very fulfillment of the uh, covenant promises made to Abraham. And they would proclaim Jesus as the son of David. So when Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to the Jews who knew the scriptures, who were brought up and educated and who were trained, who had the framework, or you want to call it worldview, they could uh, jump straight into scriptures, uh, promises, and teachings and proclaim Christ. But when Paul preaches to those who have no background, no training in scriptures, his approach is very different. So look at verse 15. Paul says, uh, this is a shocked response as he sees these people trying to offer sacrifices to him and Barnabas. He says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, what's Paul doing? Paul's beginning from the place where they are. He is speaking to them, not first of all, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he's speaking to them about God, the Creator. He's speaking to them about God who has sent them rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And that's really important for us to recognize because proclaiming Christ to people who have no understanding of scriptures, and that's the people that we meet today around us, that requires meeting people where they are in order that we may lead them by the hand to see that they, all the things that they love and desire come from God and so that we can lead them by the hand to show them that all their hopes and aspirations are met in Christ. And we need Christians to be like this today. You know, in the age and in the, in the cultural milieu that we live in, we can't simply recite John 3.16 once to unbelievers and think that's enough. Because when they have no background and understanding of scriptures, they will hear the word of Jesus and interpret it with what they're familiar with, which is paganism. So it's actually not enough for Christians to simply go around and reciting a verse or two to unbelievers and think that's going to draw people in. We have to begin where they are and do the hard work of laying down the foundations. And this is instantly why philosophy is important. Uh, precisely because the philosophy of the world is what summarizes the mindset, the worldview of the world. We need to be able to interact with it. And you can't do this if you spend all your time on frivolous things, social media, TVs, what have you. You have to read if you want to be useful to the Lord. You have to study 
if you hope to win people to Christ, you have to meet where people where they are, so that you know these people who have been. I kind of put it this way: they have been catechized since their childhood to interpret the works of God as nothing, to suppress the truth of God, who reveals Himself in glory in His creation. They have been taught from their childhood to suppress it, deny it, interpret it in a different way. And you can't simply cite a verse or two and think that's going to do it. You have to meet them where they are, and that's what Paul is doing. Let me talk to you about the Creator. Everything that you love in your life, it came from Him. He gave it to you, and all your heart's longing, desires, and aspirations. You will never find satisfaction for them until and unless you find them in Jesus Christ. In other words, as Christians who live in a post-Christian age and culture. We need to be willing and able to do the hard work and be in it for the long haul. To be able to have deep, long conversations with people, and that brings us thirdly and lastly to God walked among us. God walked among us. Notice what the crowds were shouting. The crowds they saw. Paul and Barnabas healing the crippled man, and they shouted, "The gods have come down to us in the likeness of man." And if so, what is the one and right, uh, proper response? If gods have come down to us in the likeness of man, there can be only one response, and that is to worship. But isn't it interesting? The very message of Jesus Christ is that God has become. Man, and that He has walked among us. Jesus Christ, He He came and He spoke to us words of peace and forgiveness. He healed the sick. He cast out the demons and showed and showed us that He cares deeply about our brokenness, and that He yearns to see us whole and restored. And if that's the case, what must we do? We must worship Jesus. You see, these people in Lystra—they had the instinct, and the instinct was a true instinct. If gods come and walk among us, what must we do? We must worship the gods. Jesus has come, and we must worship Him. You know, people today are no different than people of the past. People today, just as people have always been, are deeply broken, and they yearn to be whole. But without Scripture's light, they cannot even understand why they are broken, and they cannot even understand what their hearts are longing for. And the pervasive paganism of our culture, and when I say paganism, I mean simply that it is a culture that oppresses, suppresses, denies the truth of God and His Son Jesus Christ. Again, to such people with such mindset, because that's all they have ever known, because that's of all they have been trained in, 
You know, it's actually not enough to, to read God's word to them. Oh, Ken, you don't believe in the power of God's word? No, I do. There's nothing wrong with God's word. It's the people who are listening. That's where the problem is. And it's the people who are speaking. That's where the problem is. But people today are as broken as ever. And they don't have the means and the wherewithal even to understand why they are broken and where the hope is. And so we tell them that God became man in Jesus Christ. And that in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, we will find what our hearts are longing for, that longing for wholeness, that longing for peace. And so we must tell them, listen to Jesus. Believe him, learn from him, worship him. And only, only then you will be whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for speaking your truth to us. And we thank you also that in your gracious Purpose. You have given us the ears that understand. You have given us hearts that are teachable. And we give you glory. And Father, we humbly pray that you would use us in this dark age and place. That we may be the bearers of good news. That we may, with wisdom and with conviction, persevere, press on, when we face opposition and difficulties. And we pray that you would help us to be even more committed to the word of your Son and the word of your grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.